I, I think we have no time. No time. No time. That generation who was who were punished had to leave the profession to remove the stigma of reporting, because that pain was still there. You know, people heard it in the corridors. You know, don't you dare! It took 25 years. You know, it, it's as long as um, you know professionals stay in the profession to leave, and then for the new generation to take over. So, do we have you know 20, 25 years? You know, from now, when stigma is still here, you know, to report and uh, for these people who are flying, you know, this basically. Even if they don't collide, well, it's in their mind, it's playing, and it's taking away their working memory, it's taking away their situational awareness, it's taking away out of flying safe, it's taking away from, um, you know, doing their job diligently, it's playing on their mind, are they crazy, are they not, and it's a big issue, you know, for a pilot to think, am I hallucinating, you know, am I safe, am I, am I a good pilot, am I still fit to work, these things still go through the mind. You know, why should we put people through that? You know, like, you saw it, okay, well, let's look at it. You know, what is it? You know, what did you see? I think this is the first lesson. How does it detract from their professional life and from their attention of being safe? You know, why not accept and see what we can do with this? It's, it's a real con human concern. It's, it's care. It's professional care. Voice Institute is a pioneer in the field of AI-driven comparative and qualitative analysis and was established with the primary goal of uncovering the hidden value left behind in complex data sets. Through a combination of human expertise and cutting-edge technologies, Coyas has developed a range of services that cater to various industries. They are providing valuable insights that can help drive growth, formulate competitive strategy, and to identify key patterns in targeted demographics. Head to their site to learn more. Institute. That's C-O-E-U-S dot institute. Welcome to Merge. I'm Ryan Graves. Today, we're talking with Dr. Ia Whiteley, space psychologist and cognitive engineer. He is focused on improvements to human behavioral and cognitive function through information, presentation on displays, and design of training. She has 17 years of space human flight research and longer in aviation cockpit design, uh, as well as designs for astronauts. She's advised the UK government as chair of the Space Environment Working Group and the member of the UK Space Exploration Advisory Committee. Thank you for joining me. And now, Dr. Ia Whiteley. Well, yeah, thanks for joining me. Um, I think one of the first things people might uh, wonder is what exactly is a space psychologist? Um, yes, yeah, so uh, I uh, did not know that I would become a space psychologist, but I wanted to work uh, either to become an astronaut or, uh, but, uh, you know, as close as I could get to understanding how people become, how people work in extreme environment. And my interest is really is that how to improve people's performance when um, it's stressful, when it is, um, you know, a lot of pressures. And I found that um, I have a background in martial art and I, I really like that because uh, I found that it keeps you focused. You're always watching, you're always aware. And I kind of grew up in that uh, because my father was uh, martial artist and it was not allowed at the time. <laughs> but um, 
but I kind of grew up with awareness that you need to know that you're part of the environment and, um, you know, everything has meaning. Um, so it's Eastern philosophy. And um, it was important for me to see how, you know, in extreme environments, some people excel and some people don't. So something happens and the person taps in into something that they did, they did not know about themselves. Mm. And um, and I find that you know a lot with um, you know very reactive professions, meaning like um, you know pilots, for example. Uh, you know, you it's a, a lot of training, so the reaction is trained. But uh, nevertheless, you have to make a decision and you have to go with it. You know, you, you can't uh, step. You know, <laughs> rewind. You have to live but, with your decision. Yeah, yeah. You can't rewind. It's not a simulator, right? You just. Um, you you know stick to it and then you know work with the consequences um and uh, what i found is that uh, there are many professions and situations where people have these insights you know of they wouldn't have thought of it if it wasn't for that situation and they discover something about themselves so i just started to to look how i can learn more about that you know about this human performance in extreme environments and how do people tap in into this? You know, why, um, you know, all these myths that I grew up with uh, having, um, um, you know, like um, martial art uh, temples where there were masters who could, uh, you know, sense the environment from, you know, with their back and, mm -hmm. you know, they knew what was coming and, and you know, that kind of understanding. And, um, and then I came you know, very close with that, you know, coming with people, um, like, um, unexpectedly so. So, for example, uh, there were firefighters um, in Australia. And um, so what they do is that uh, they were studying the decision-making in extreme environment. And uh, the decision-making, uh, it's sort of hard to articulate of why one expert does something. And so they've used this methodology, which um, I think would be useful in, in the UAP, understanding what happens in our reactions to UAP. So uh, you, as a space psychologist, you've kind of been um, essentially working with people uh, in highly technical tasks, highly mm -hmm. um, uh, specific tasks, such as pilots, such as astronauts. Can you explain some of the work that you've done in support of astronauts uh, in your role as a space psychologist? So I have several projects that worked uh, that are worked in space um, and uh, they're focused on improving um, our performance but also to help us understand what happens to us as we sort of go into these unusual environments or non uh, you know not suitable I guess for for, li for living for a long long time um, and I'm focused on research, on designing tools for psychological support and uh, measuring well-being and seeing how to prevent problems because uh, it's the best cure, you know, prevention. Uh, and uh, so what we found uh, in the work, and, you know, there's always a team mm -hmm. <laughs> that, uh, that we work together. And um, so what I found is that, uh, that astronauts and cosmonauts are very capable you know, and the last thing they really want is to be monitored, right? <laughs> so, um, because they're there for a reason, you know, they took a long time to get there. And um, there is this 
challenge of um, of having, um, you know, understanding your limit. And these are the people who always push the limit. They push the limit uh, in their training. You know, they study several subjects. They do many degrees. They multitask. They, uh, you know, they this at the same time they still have to maintain their personal life. You know, and this is all quite challenging. So in order to assist, but not to, you know, the point is to to help. Mm-hmm. It, it's not to monitor for the sake of whom caught you. You know, yeah. the, the, so yeah. NASA's are, you know, basically the ground controller trying to set up a very controlled and disciplined and scheduled environment, and mm-hmm. is not allowing the astronauts to expand the way they normally do, kind of mm-hmm. to to fill the void, fill the time, be efficient with their time. Is that what you're describing? Um, well, yes. So there is that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that's interesting. I think the, you know, what you're touching on, mm, because there was a, a, you know, standoff, right, <laughs> when the astronauts uh, completely switched off the communication, which is unheard of. So on the Skylab, uh, the crew, being highly efficient, you know, and the people are trying to use every minute because it's paid by the government, you know, it's our tax, uh, essentially, and people are fully aware of that, you know, on the ground who are helping and people in space, so astronauts themselves. So they want to be as efficient as they can. So what happened is there was a frustration because they're given a schedule and it's planned meticulously so because it can sometimes has to coincide with a particular orbit and you have to take shots or you have to do certain measurements being in a particular location. And then you have to transmit it when you're on, on the other side of the Earth and so on. So 90 minutes, you know, like it's a repeat. Uh, and of course, they have to sleep and they also want to um, engage in some conversation, personal conversation. But what happened is that they, they have... Um, Sometimes they're not allowed to do a task uh, because it's not on the schedule. Mm-hmm. But they know they can do it because they've got their tools. Because sometimes the bigger problem actually on ISS, on International Space Station, is losing things. So to actually to prepare to do a task, sometimes, you know, one crew lost a shoe and never found it. It's like you think, how could you <laughs> lose a shoe, you know, and why do you need a shoe? Well, they need shoes to run, you know, on the treadmill. But um, uh, so... Uh, so they want to be efficient, but they're not. They were not allowed. Mm. So, and it's almost like you know this absolutely uh, top of the field expert who is very efficient to get there suddenly is not allowed to um, to control their schedule. You know. That, so they just shut the comms off. Yeah, yeah. They completely uh, they switched off for I think it was twenty four hours or long enough to make people nervous. That's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah. Well, do you have any idea of what the reaction was on the ground? Um, no, I, I I haven't spoken with yeah. anyone on the ground. But the um, the consequences were is that they were making a point, but nobody was listening. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they were saying, "Look, we could be doing these things, but we're not allowed." And so, quiet boycott. <laughs> you know, I guess is uh, better than anything else in terms of sabotage. But And that's, yeah, yeah. that's where you would come in before that, right? You would want to try to build that psychologically mm. safe and comfortable place for yeah. astronauts or other explorers in the future to be able to operate in. That's how I interpret what a space psychologist or perhaps a cognitive engineer would do. Mm-hmm. Um, these these skill sets that you, you have studying that, um, my understanding is it applies to aviation safety. I've heard you speak to some of the nuances of aviation safety. And they resonated with me because 
uh, it was some of the same language that was taught to me when I was in the Navy, uh, flying F-18s, both on our initial training, but even every uh, six months, we go through recurrent training uh, on a different instrument and other types of training. And the words that you spoke to really resonated with me. Uh, because one of the difficult things I find in this conversation is uh, expressing why UAP represent uh, an aviation safety concern. Uh, the common uh, refrain is, well, why, why don't I hear about us hitting these all the time? As if that is, um, mm-hmm. it's a binary issue. It's either they're not real or we must be hitting them all the time for them to be a safety issue. I understand that aviation safety is is more nuanced. I, I lived and breathed that for a while. I was trained as an aviation safety officer. Mm-hmm. You were uh, trained at a much higher level to interface at almost the first principles level, to my understanding, engineering level to help understand what these procedures and these environments could be like, perhaps. Um, so I really respect your um, um, your training and your expertise in aviation safety. And I was hoping you'd help me uh, help others understand a little bit about the nuance of of aviation safety and aerospace safety. Let's talk a little bit about how uh, air crew uh, work in a framework of safety yeah. and how uh, we uh, account for various uh, assumptions or considerations as we go about our day. Yeah, uh, we don't just leave things unconsidered um, because we need to mitigate various safety issues to provide the high level of safety that we do, both on the military and the commercial side. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so I on purpose went through um, you know pilot training, well, because I just like flying. But also, it's sort of like you are not you're not unable to speak the language. And to me, to be able to speak the language is understanding the, th- the thought processes. So. Um, so I cannot, you know, for example, uh, I'm not a surgeon, yeah, so w- when I worked with surgeons, I found it difficult to to actually communicate because there's a lot of other terminology, know-how and understanding. Um, but when I understood, you know, what the flying processes is about, so to understanding, you know, like you have to have peripheral, peripheral vision when you are landing and nobody can kind of explain this to you until you felt it and, you know, knowing you know, where where your wheels are and in relation to the runway, how fast you're going, how, you know, you should be accelerating and, and you know, you know when you're going to touch down, okay, before you do, mm-hmm. you know. So it, it's all that feeling and uh, you can't possibly explain that to me if I'm not a pilot, not really. And so understanding that thought process was important for me of what you go through in your mind in order to um, to actually help in any way. Because it's something that is um, so embedded in how you think. So, uh, and to understand that you always have to be ahead of the plane all the time. It's, uh, it's a big deal and not many people understand. So like in the car, right? People are driving and you would look, I don't know, pick a music or you got distracted a little bit. But you're not planning, you know, because you're going to, I don't know, have to land in a couple of minutes and you have to watch where you you might have to, you know, turn what the winds are. You have to keep it all of that in mind. So to understand that all of that is happening in the pilot's mind at all times. And that transfers to life as well. <laughs> yeah. So there is that process. Of, worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, but that's why, you know, the world is so diverse, right? And it's helpful t- to get that thinking, that that thought process. So I think for me, that was important to understand as fundamental aspects of safety or even touching on design, 
you know, on and and of course I I'm I'm not a fighter pilot, you know, I don't fly jets, so there's a lot of knowledge gap, but at least I, I can understand what the flow might be in any one of those phases. And by understanding that, then we could start to think about, um, you know, safety aspects. So what do you need or uh, can we load you with more information or can we ask you for more things? So, for example, when doing studies with uh, pilots, which I also did uh, in the cockpit, is that um, so some so NASA has this workload um, list, also work, workload questionnaire that um, you ask a few questions and you figure out, you know, how busy the pilot is. But the problem with that is that I'm sitting with you and, you know, you are flying or doing something or you're talking to me. And suddenly I throw at you four questions. Where is your thought process? <laughs> you know, like you have to then regroup, you know, come back with situational awareness, do all the scans, you know, because your mental capacity got taken away. Um, so this is not useful. It is useful for whoever studying workload, but it's not representative of what happens in the cockpit you know, at all. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested is that how can I get in to, to that space and to understand what is the thought process in order to then to put my five cents, you know, that I might be helpful in some way. That's incredible. That was always, the, you know, one of the hardest things for me as a pilot was um, just that. We, we often ride that edge of cognitive limitation when we're in fighters, mm. especially in air-to-air -air engagements uh, where we're targeting into a lot of groups and we have to organize that information, potentially communicate this, that to some of our other wingmen. It's very, very challenging. Uh, one of the things we do with technology is we compress the battle space into a representative uh, imagery, such as a situational awareness page that brings all the data into one spot. Uh, one of the concerns uh, that has been expressed by myself and others is that that filtration process represents a point where uh, potentially if we're not looking for something, we're going to filter that out of the data set because we're looking for something that has characteristics X and Y, uh, but things such as uh, balloons that might be traveling very slowly over the continental United States don't necessarily get picked up by those types of sensors. That's a very good point, you know, that you brought up about... Um... If you are not looking for it, you're not going to see it. Uh, and that's, um, so there's a famous experiment about the gorilla, right? Working across the room, right? Uh, so, and uh, so that's the point is that if you're focusing on something, you know, other information is going to miss out. Um, pilots are the exception to that though, you know, because especially I would imagine in combat situation or, you know, when you're busy, you know, aerobatic maneuvers is, is another one or flying information. And um, so you are then, you know, you're looking for minor change, but also what you're doing is that you're looking for when is the right time to communicate to to your, you know, whoever you need to communicate with, either your, you know, wing person or air traffic control or I don't know, to, to where you are, you, you know, to keep situational awareness. And I find that, um, so when I was working, uh, we were talking about conversion from C-130 uh, analog aircraft, which is kind of got dials, so mm. like clocks. Mm -hmm. So this is an old type of setup. It's a military big cargo airplane. Um, and pilots say only the mother can love the face of the aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful bird, actually. And when you hear it flying, it's very nice. Um, so I, you know, I do hear it. It does fly around where 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 we live, and I come out and I I like it. <laughs> uh, uh, so 
then when um, so when we were converting from analog to glass, which has became uh, screens, basically computer screens. Uh, inside the cockpit. Inside the cockpit, yeah. yeah. So it's converting from analog cockpit going to a modern cockpit, mm-hmm. which is called glass cockpit because it's full of displays. And so they're all reflective. Uh, and uh, what I found is that um, when pilots um, were, uh, you know, doing tasks, and so it was in Australia at the time, so we were, um, again, as a team consulting, is it okay to go from four to five people, crew, to two? Uh, and is it turned out to be, it's not, you know. <laughs> so, you know, the claim was by Lockheed Martin that uh, uh, the two people, you know, everything else automation would do for you. But no, what happens is what we just discussed with you about this communication aspect is that the navigator uh, and the engineer and the master, who is kind of not part of the cockpit, right, but he's still the crew, mm-hmm. uh, they know when you've got the space, the capacity, you know, whoever they need to communicate with, whether it's pilot with an engineer or pilot with a loadmaster or a navigator with a pilot, you know, all of that is is tightly, it's like a network, you know, and they know when the window opens and you can communicate that information and it wouldn't overload somebody. Mm. But when else, the system's working well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But that's what cruise source management is, mm-hmm. right? Is when, when you learn to coordinate that. And I think that's important is that looking for those gaps, you know, when you're working at the edge of cognitive um, capacity, because I don't think it's edge of your cognitive ability because mm-hmm. that stretches all the time as, as you train. But I, th- I think it's important to recognize that you're always open to new input. And I think I heard you speak once when you were talking about um, about merging. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, you got sp- split seconds when you're actually passing by another aircraft and you could see how the wind, you know, how, how the wind, not the wind, the air moves on their, on their wings. Mm-hmm. You know, it, that detail. And... Um, it's that split second, you know, uh, of knowing what the intention of that pilot is just by a slight change, you know, of something. Mm-hmm. And you can't possibly articulate that. And this is what is precognitive or preverbal knowledge, it's called. So experts have that. And it's really hard to articulate. Let's talk a little bit about that. Okay. I know that's an area of interest. So, um, Consciousness is an interesting uh, topic area, of course. Uh, my loose understanding is that it takes about half a second, 500 milliseconds for basically the chemical processes, the synapses from the essentially input of information to the brain through the analysis of that information, the cognitive, or excuse me, the conscious processing of that, and then the ability to then react to that information takes about a half a second. Of course, we react in much faster times than that. Um, so that's kind of where those two models of how our brain work um, collide. Uh, and we don't necessarily have a good answer for that right now is my understanding. Um, is that what you're talking about when you talk about the ability to uh, somewhat um, have that intuition about what's happening? Is that one way of thinking about it, being able to react very quickly in high-stress environments? Um, so there are uh, sort of science that science doesn't expect, doesn't accept, right? <laughs> Uh, and um, and I'm talking about uh, actually, uh, you know, experiments that have been repeated over and over again about the um, ability to perceive, you know, milliseconds uh, before. So we know, somehow we know of what's going to happen. So and these experiments were done um, uh, by Noetic Science uh, Institute, IONS. 
And Dean Radin writes about this extensively, and they were repeated over and over hundreds and hundreds of times. So somewhere our body knows um, about what will happen. And the experiment really is set up to run um, by showing the pictures to you uh, that are of, uh, you know, that will have an emotional response. So they're very either pleasant or very unpleasant. Uh, and somehow, without having any ability, you don't have to be special, you know, like just any human will will have a reaction that we are not aware of in a way, consciously, mm -hmm. we're not aware of. So when um, science talks about, um, you know, other aspects that we have this much time to react, uh, I, I lived through my career as a scientist, you know, for people thinking, you know, having models of how our memory works and, uh, you know, it goes through like, a, you know, a diagram. Well, in my experience and talking to people working in extreme environments, there's no diagram, <laughs> you know, like you just, it just pops up and you sometimes you can't trace it where it's from. Uh, and this is from really, you know, talking with pilots, with astronauts, with surgeons, uh, they just know. They don't know why, they don't know how. They can tell you the background story if it's, uh, you know, for a medical committee review. They can make it up of why they thought to do that. Mm -hmm. But in reality, no, they, it, they just know. And it comes from this experience that people have, you know, of being working on this edge. This is where this is how this is why expert is different. So when you talk, yeah, can we think of this? Sorry, <laughs> I just couldn't wait to say. It. Can we think of this almost like the expert gets access to two things: one, more data over time to build their expertise, and then unique or new data because they're working on the edge and they're exposed to more difficult cases or harder cases. Uh, and would that be uh, uh, similar to? machine learning algorithm that is exposed to more data and newer data. And so its models are better. And we, as the outside observer, may not 100% understand why that machine learning model is performing the way it is or outputting the exact answer. We don't can't see into exactly how the model works or the way it's work exactly. Is that almost the same for an expert? It's just the conscious experience of that model being generated is outside of their experience? <laughs> um, well, um, <laughs> I, I'm thinking on how um, I don't. I don't know how to answer that. It sounds similar. You know, it's almost like an expert is doing this more often. He can't actually yeah. say why. Perhaps yeah. it's hard to train that someone else to say, "Hey, here's the exact skill set I have," because they haven't mm -hmm. fully processed it into mm -hmm. perhaps a list. But they're still reacting to their data and their experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's perhaps is it coming from nowhere? Or is it perhaps just unrecognizable because it's coming from inference of a lot of data. Well, I'll give you an example. I think it's, I quite like, you know, real kind of tangible things that that you can work through. So, um, so the method that I've used for understanding, you know, the thought processes in this preverbal uh, expertise, yeah, that, that um, you know, now in three professions that I have looked at, uh, so what happens is that um, firefighters, so this is where the te te technique that I'm using has got originated in Australia. Uh, and uh, so they were studying to understand of why, you know, some pilots, some sorry, why, why some uh, firefighters are able to exit the building just before it's going to collapse, mm. right? Or how do they determine, you know, where 
you know, bushfire is going to spread. It's not obvious, it, and it's but they know. Mm-hmm. And so when you listen to them, you get goosebumps, you know, for, for these experts talking about it because they talk about this as a living system, you know, the, the fire, on how it behaves. And uh, so when when they're discussing it, they're saying like, uh, you know, it crackles differently. It um, uh, it behaves in a certain way. It has um, uh, heat differently. It flows differently. Uh, but then when they were trying to teach other novice, you know, because the whole point is that how can you pass that knowledge? And so they're not allowed, right, to, they've got this protection, you know, heat protection covers mm-hmm. um, on, on their helmet. Uh, they actually open them. And, and uh, I don't, I don't recall if they remember or don't remember doing that and whether when they come out, they pull it down. But what happened is that they feel the change, either the, in movement of air or in temperature. And that's when they know they need to get out. Oh. And it's so crucial. And you could never, uh, well, possibly someone who is so aware of their senses and how they operate. But to get to that granularity of expertise, which is literally proverbial and wouldn't have come out unless the te- that technique was used when you can actually take them back into that situation to that degree that they can recall what was happening. But they were doing this and this piece of information, you know, possibly saved many, many lives, you know, including getting out of the building too early and saving somebody's life, but also, you know, for the crew to get out mm. on time. That's interesting. We, we call that as pilots flying by the seat of our pants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure you're aware. And yeah. of course, why we don't like flying in the simulator very much, uh, because it just can't uh, mimic, you know, what it is actually yeah. like to be in the jet. Um, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, um, so I am interested in this. You know, where does this information come from? And you know, how do you know that? Uh, you know that. You know, a, a good example for every day. You know, for us driving is sort of like, you know, what the driver is going to do. In a, in in essence, they haven't done anything yet, but you could see that, that for sure they're just going to cross you in a minute, or <laughs> you know they're not going to indicate and turn, or you know something, or they're going to stop suddenly. The, there is this expectation, and you're processing all of that information, and possibly it was there, like you know you might have by you know glimpse saw that there was something coming to the road, and that's why they would react. But in actuality, you can't articulate that. But you react to that. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm interested in, Mm. you know, is that ability to absorb all of that information and be safe. And so I'm interested where that safety, you know, decision comes from, you know, what pieces of information do you collect? Uh, And that's exactly what, you know, um, uh, these pilots articulated to me in order to design a different type of layout of information so they could be more efficient and quicker. Mm. But, But it's not coming from me. It's understanding the cognitive process of the expert and then giving time them to articulate them. Because if you ask a pilot, you know, how did your landing go? <laughs> what, what would you say? You know, you land on the deck. Uh, <laughs> any, I, don't, any. I honestly don't even know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, would just, I would fly it in and I would, you know, I would just probably describe my deviations from what would be expected as far as my airspeed or my altitudes mm-hmm. or glide slope and, you know, say, oh, I was a little high that time, but otherwise it was pretty good. Yeah, exactly. So how could I improve displays from that? You know, like I can't, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it's, it seems like it's already perfect, right? There's, there's nothing I can do. So, uh, well, me as, uh, you know, maybe somebody else can, but, <laughs> but the point is that, um, that 
you report what you generally trained to do. Um, and it's safe to do, and it's cultural to do, and it's efficient, mm-hmm. right? Because that's all that's required. You know, there was n- nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, but in order for me to to help in any way, I would want to see of what was actually flowing through your mind. You know, like, um, you know, was it a night landing and you saw, you know, bioluminescence and you looked at that? For example. Where is my eye actually yeah. going? Yeah. yeah. So I'm interested in that. But there is also interesting to that where you're talking about the eyes. So there is, um, so suddenly the technology kind of, you know, as, de- as develops and there were eye tracking, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to see where pilots are looking. And suddenly this ke- became like a big thing. But uh, it's not the fact that you're absorbing that information. You're looking, but not maybe yeah. seeing. Yeah. Yes. Also not seeing, but also it, it might not be useful. You looked at it, but ignored it. Mm-hmm. And it's taken as data as if you've taken it in or you look at that. But maybe, uh, you know, it has nothing to do. So nothing to do with you needing that information. Mm-hmm. So it's about taking that of what was, what was you know, like literally reading your thought process second by second and understanding on what that part of it, um, you know, help you to stay safe. Mm. And that's what I'm interested in. And and that's the most helpful way to kind of then to externalize uh, or help you out externally on the displays to place information differently so you can next time you don't need to search for it in your memory or do a mental calculation, hence cognitive engineering, right? So (laughs) the the subject is to help your cognition to be um, assisted by technology that can do other things better mm. for you. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you how perhaps that type of cognitive engineering and your lesson learned could perhaps be uh, applied to better understanding and building procedures around UAP. Uh, but first, um, perhaps you could just provide a little background about um any interest that you have or any professional experience, personal experience that you might have with UAP or how you got into this as a uh, area of aviation safety concern? Um, So it's a taboo. You know, the topic is a taboo. Um, And uh, it's taboo in science in the same way as it is in aviation. So I don't work on that, you know, at the university in my current position. So this is kind of a hobby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And... uh, and and it's sad because, um, you know, I, I grew up with the notion that people experience this. I had no problem kind of putting that into my mind. Well, some people, you know, see it and that's possibly in the field of their view based on what they do or where they work. Just unusual things happen. Um, but then, you know, since, you know, several years now, or at least two years, that it's kind of came to a surface in the U.S., Um, And it became a real issue. Um, I thought, you know, like, uh, so what do I know? You know, how can I use my tools that I have sort of acquired over the years Mm -hmm. to, you know, to assist? Because I am I'm passionate about, you know, aviation, my profession. I'm interested uh, how people how to improve people in extreme environments, you know, what they can do. So this is, you know, just ticks all the boxes for me. So I'm very curious, but there's no funding. You know, there's just nothing. And you're not even allow, allowed to mention this in, in the community, which is really sad because it's a real issue. 
Have you spoken with any of your colleagues about this? Uh, no, no. I spoke with pilots that I used to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so the pilots are very... Um, uh, the people that I know, op- you know, openly share or say they have or they haven't and what was it. And um, But generally, people would stay off that topic if it becomes uh, on record, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, but... Uh, you know, we have tools that, you know, may assist the issue. So I don't understand why can't we look at that, you know. Who's we, the scientific community? Well, I mean, I can see tools, right, mm-hmm. that I have used in the teams that I've worked with, right? So why why not utilize those tools? Uh, and obviously it's not one person's job, so I can't do this alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has to be a team, you know, I can't tackle this on my own. I can't tackle this without pilots, you know, coming forward and being, you know, wanting to share of what is actually going through their mind, feeling safe, you know, um, you know, like with pilots I I worked with, I talk about this, you know, kind of uh, great detail in my work, but you don't have to mention names. You know, the whole point is that, that I navigate, um, that I understand what the, I mean, from my point of view, it's an information processing challenge, right, in the first issue. So, uh, and what happens, uh, for example, in, in so how it relates to what I've done before, right? So my expertise were in uh, dealing how automation uh, is a challenge, is a, in a way. So there was a problem called automation surprise, in a way. In aviation. In aviation, yeah. Okay. So when we went from analog to glass, so from, you know, uh, clock-like cockpits, you know, with mm-hmm. the, the modern dials. digital displays. Yes, that's right. So then um, <clears throat> there, there was um, an idea of an autopilot, you know, built into it. And it's not just autopilot. There's uh, many, many functions. So it can navigate, it descend, it can ascend, it could navigate, calculate the fuel, estimate. You know, there's many, many things. And the challenge was is that it was programmed by engineers uh, or how to make efficient, uh, you know, uh, fuel management uh, to save, you know, because of how they manage flight path and how they manage ascent, descent, acceleration, deceleration, change in modes. Um, so it was all about, you know, this hoo-ha about saving, you know, um, well, also saving environment, you know, because mm-hmm. it will save fuel. Um, and um, But what happened is that when it came through and pilots did get trained on it, um, properly, it's, it, it's called ab initio kind of conversion, where you go from a, a previous cockpit to an automated cockpit, and it's all done in in a similar. It's actually computer based training, which I went through to understand, you know, how it filtrates. So I went through A320 and triple seven and C130J, you know, to understand mm-hmm. what was the process. But I never flew one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but what helped me is to understand on what, uh, you know, when they start speaking the language of what they were experiencing as a problem. Um, so, um, so what I saw is that uh, accidents were happening more so than, be, well, sli- they slightly increased. So there were like 30 accidents per year. Um, this is like um, late, nine, late, late 90s. Uh, and then there was airplane 
crushing, so fatal. So this is fatal accidents. This is an increase. So increase, w- increase. When they introduced automation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Increase by uh, one every one week. An every accident week. a week. Yeah, an accident wow. a week. So there were uh, nearly 50 accidents per year. So uh, And so it became a real problem, right? Uh, and so the analysis, you know, initially they were saying there were like, um, you know, very high human error. And uh, then they started to introduce um, uh, other experts into into the investigation. And what uh, started to happen is that um, people were not unable, they couldn't f- understand of why this was happening. And people were not happy to talk about it because they did not know what the aircraft was doing. Mm-hmm. So when I would go to conferences, right, and say, um, like, look, uh, the pilot doesn't know what the cockpit is, what the aircraft is doing. People are like, what? You know, I'm flying <laughs> this aircraft. you want to hear. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm flying this, uh, you know, commercial airliners. Let's say, you know, every week some business people fly it very frequently. Um, but it was a problem. And, uh, you know, they were all trained. They were all checked. They were checked, you know, check captains uh, who would do the training who had the same problem. And there were certain, certain things that were assumed that the pilot doesn't need to know or assume that the pilot would think the same way. But the problem is that the aircraft managed flight path or any type of uh, change in mode on how it would, for example, transition from descent to ascent or to altitude. It was The logic was different on how they would fly, what they will put priority to mm-hmm. instead of fuel management. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and the engineers programmed it to be as efficient as possible instead yeah. of so that it can be flown by the pilot yeah. uh, as safely and easily as possible. Yeah, and and so the challenge was is that they were saying, I don't know, what's it doing? You know, uh, how did it switch? And uh, so the accidents were initially were taught to be 80%, error, you know, human error, meaning mm-hmm. not human error, pilot error. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they started to look in further and trying to understand, to depict it, uh, and it was 40% you know, human human error, not pilot error, but human error. Mm. So there were many things that were, there was still human error, but not the person in the cockpit. So for example, there would be, you know, maintenance error, maintenance error, you okay. know, that contribute to it, management problems, pressures that the pilots had. And all of these things have to line up for an accident to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's like a Swiss cheese model by... Uh, James Reason that I'm, I'm sure you taught in your I was yeah, yep. yeah in human factors. So, uh, and the idea is that all of these things detract for, from pilots' attention. Everyone adds a little bit yeah. into that problem, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. So, for example, um, you know, a report that needs to be filed that they haven't filed. Management, uh, you know, said you have you must save fuel. Do not do uh, an extra circuit. You know, for example, if you're unsure or the weather is not right, or you know, just press on. You know, do land hmm. or land on time. You know, like you know, this is a burn more fuel and leave yourself in a tighter position, perhaps be more economical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and all of those things they're playing on the pilot's mind instead of focusing on descent and safe landing so all of these things and of course there's you know family personal colleagues you know all of that is happening and then cockpit does something I was like what you know I'm just about to land and I, I didn't set you know that mode or d- didn't transition to, into that mm-hmm. 
Uh, and suddenly the aircraft is either stalling or descending too fast or you're losing altitude. Um, and suddenly terrain, terrain comes up and thinking like, you know, we, should, we shouldn't be here yeah. anyway. Yeah. And, and you are miles behind then. You know, yeah, of now, the aircraft. now you're behind the aircraft. Yeah, you're yeah. behind the aircraft and, and you need to now not only uh, deal with the situation, but you need to figure out where you are you know, navigationally, operationally, and, you know, whom do you talk to, what do you do? And, of course, you pull up first, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, all of this is still going through. And what if you don't have enough lift? And so you're not able, you're not, you know, you're not flying by the seat of your pants mm -hmm. be because you are trusting so this trust in automation somehow, uh, you know, we, we trust easily actually as humans. We trust very easily. We, we, we give our trust easily. Uh, and, uh, and what has been happening is that they have pilots started to talk among themselves because they could not say they don't understand what their cockpit, you know, what, what is happening in the aircraft. Or check captain couldn't say, I did not know what was happening. You know, mm. got cut out. Yeah, but then in pubs, but they're all having the same issues. They're all it? having the same mm. issues, but they're not talking. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, because they're surprised, they're shocked. So it's their reputation, right? It's their professional um, stand. You know, on who they are. They, if they don't know what they're flying, they've just converted. They m might have got an increase in salary. You know, the, all sorts of consequences. It's livelihood. Mm -hmm. You know, this is this is what the person you know, the whole life have been reaching and they're finally flying the most latest, you know, aircraft and they can't, um, you know, they're not doing their job, which they used to do they're 20 years before. They're themselves and not yeah. the, the system itself. Yeah, but mm -hmm. because because when you are flying, you are responsible, mm -hmm. right? So you are responsible for the airplane, you're responsible for your crew if you're a captain, and you're responsible for everybody who's in the back, right? So... You're thinking, you're processing all of that. So all of that is going through your mind in addition that I don't know what the aircraft is doing. So I'm thinking, do I say it? Do I not? Do I just, you know, uh, work through it and hopefully it will never happen again? You know, like different thinking pro. I imagine that thinking that you just said, maybe I can ignore it, it'll never happen again. <laughs> uh, I imagine that probably goes through a lot of pilots' minds uh, if they have a UAP experience. Possibly, you know, like, and, but... It, uh, once it entered your mind, you know, you can't wipe it off. Not really, mm -hmm. you know. So if it happened to you and you're thinking, well, I'm just going to ignore it, right? Uh, but it's there. It happened. So you will always, it will now take up some of your working memory. So your capacity to absorb new things mm -hmm. or to act or to be safe or to remember other important things. So, and, and this is safety, you know, this is a problem because once a little bit capacity of you thinking about safety has taken away, so it's kind of chopping your resources mm -hmm. and suddenly you're not on the task. So same thing was happening. So they started talking in the pubs, you know, or starting to talk to friends, you know, who would, you know, they will test the waters. Trusted friends, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, test mm -hmm. the waters, you know, like, and, and, and then suddenly they realize they're not alone mm -hmm. and it's a big relief. It's a big relief because they're now saying, like, it's not me. I'm not stupid. You know, I have, uh, you know, all my professional training is correct. You know, I'm experiencing this. Uh, it's not my own fault. It's not because I'm not attentive on, or did not train well. You know, everybody 
not everybody, but like, you know, the majority of the people in my profession are having this. I haven't talked to everyone, mm -hmm. but people I touch base and trust, they're having the same issue. So they're starting now uh, to, you know, to think about what to do. So at this time, you know, the uh, aviation, so aircraft designers are not knowing this, right? They don't know that. We're still talking about automation. I know it sounds like we could be talking about UAP right now, but we're yeah. still talking about automation. It's That's very right. closely aligned. Yeah, exactly. So the aircraft designers still don't know that there is an automation surprise problem uh, with um, with pilots, right? But they're not start starting to talk and they feel like it is becoming a safety. So people who are safety conscious like yourself, you know, people who, who need to keep, um, you know, safety policies, procedures and, you know, constantly debriefing and seeing what the problem might be, they're starting to rise, but they're punished. Mm. They're punished until they're backed up. So uh, pilots, some pilots lose jobs. Uh, they lose families. Their children suffer. So like big consequences, you know, mm. and this, some people never recover. Some people commit suicide. It's that bad. Wow. You know, so like it, these are real, you know, lives. And, you know, and the only reason that person committed suicide, right, it's because he couldn't take responsibility of killing all other people in that aircraft. You know, that that is something that is oh. going through their mind. And I think that's important to account, mm. right? You know, like, so these are people who are honorable people, mm -hmm. you know, and we disrespect their professional opinion. <laughs> you know, this is, this is shameful, I think. You know, like, uh, you know, you wouldn't... Um, you know, you would you would trust the surgeon, mm -hmm. right? You know, with your life. And here, you trust you know uh, you know hundreds of people in the back of the aircraft, and we're not trusting you know their actual observation. You know that they feel uncomfortable flying, or they don't feel they're gonna you know bring those people across safely. So I think I think it's important. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, even if it's just um, it maybe uh, you know sounds like a cry for help. You know, so maybe it's maybe it's real, mm -hmm. you know, like maybe it's if it's real for this person who's been doing this this job for many, many years, you know, maybe we should pay attention. And if there are many people t talking about it, then definitely, you know, th there is a there's a professional concern. And these are people who are, you know, trusted with many, many things. So how did that eventually get resolved in the automation world? You said, you know, they got more support. What did that look like? So pilots got together. And uh, so at the time, the internet wasn't that uh, advanced. So 20 years ago or more than 20 years ago now. Um, so 25. So this is, so they started to create forums. So these are forums that you wouldn't be admitted to unless you are. <laughs> I you know, might belong to a few of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, so unless you're checked and trusted, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so they would start discussing these issues and they will start actually putting technical details in. So they will say, this mode, that mode, I was doing that and um, this happened. And then the other pilots say, yeah, uh, I had exactly the same thing or no, something else different happened for me. Watch out for that. So the only way they felt comfortable was basically back-channeling it Mm. On, on web forums to yeah. have conversations. Yeah. Anonymously, I assume. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Semi-anonymous. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Uh, but yeah. I, I, I don't remember whether there were, um, I, I mean, certainly you could log into a different name, you know, sure. because I got into those forums by, you know, pilots who whom I worked with. They said, you know, go check this out. And mm -hmm. um, and so, and it, you'd, you'd read one liners, thousands and thousands, you know, of reporting the types of automation. And they're not grouped by anything. So there would be like um, 
uh, you know, I flew yesterday and um, on landing, my, my speed declined, you know, nearly to a stall. And this was, these were the steps, you know, and this is how I recovered. Wow. They're so, actually putting actual procedures out. Yeah, yeah. So because they're concerned for each other, you know. Well, it's I get a body it. I, I totally get it as yeah. a pilot, but it's just yeah. it's shocking and sad to see that that's the the state of affairs at that yeah. point. Yeah. So then, um, um, you know, they feel you know power in numbers, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, somehow I don't I don't know that step, but it filtrates to um, well, probably it filtrated through accidents, unfortunately. So major That's typically fatal. how we, l- yeah. we learn yeah. in aviation yeah. through blood. So I'm just terrible, right? Mm-hmm. So because this is hundreds of people uh, and children, and um, anyway, it's it's loss of life in, um, and so so these started to rise, and there were some famous accidents, you know, that to do with uh, you know colliding with the mountain and um, uh, you know unable to recover, and then they go to black box, and and this is because it was not spoken to. But people were experiencing this way before, right? So uh, these accidents, and I'm scanning these. So my PhD is to do with uh, improving, you know, uh, converting from analog to glass and making sure that we can improve information processing, you know, to, to help the pilot to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. Because the the expectation that automation will take hold or, or replace. Just fix everything. Yeah, well, yeah, well will replace um, engineer or navigator. Mm. And so now pilot can look at it. But the pilot is not told the information. He needs to look it up. Hence, his capacity is taken away. He can't monitor that. Yeah, he, can, yeah. he can't do other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so these, there's many assumptions that are done. Um, and it was interesting, you know, to, to look into that. Um, <clears throat> so, so now uh, what we're seeing is that uh, I suddenly have access to all this data database, mm-hmm. right? A precious database that by concerned pilots, you know. In, so the, in, the, in the form in the of forums. forums. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So now, um, you know, we as uh, scientists are so, um, you know, pouring all, all over this because then we're looking what happens with accidents. We're waiting for accident reports to come out. They take months to come out. Um, you know, obviously there's a very diligent people mm-hmm. who are looking to it, concerned pilots, you know, look into it and um, and so the awareness is being raised, uh, and um, and I now present you know this information on conferences of what I observe, the analysis that I see, uh, and uh, the word filtrates you know back to aviation. I meet um, Airbus um, captain who was designing philosophy for Airbus, um, and you know everybody is concerned. You know, like many many things are starting to change, and new upgrades are happening. Mm-hmm the cockpit but more so first thing always first thing is training you know first thing procedures and training this is something that you can fix quicker right Uh, and hopefully not through loss of life what 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 lessons can we take from that and apply to UAP yeah yeah my I think we have no time no time no time because if it took look at 25 years ago and only now, you know, new pilots feel comfortable talking about them not understanding something in the cockpit. Mm. So that generation who was who were punished had to leave the profession to remove the stigma of reporting because that pain was still there. You know, people heard it in the corridors, you know, 
don't you dare, you know, you might lose so it. So there was a lag between when a, yeah. a suitable reporting mechanism was put in place and when it truly yeah. became integrated into the pilot community. Yeah. So the the safety culture, you know, you speak up because, um, so for example, and yeah, um, <laughs> so the it, it, it took 25 years, you know, it, it's as long as, um, you know, professionals stay in the profession to leave and then for the new generation to take over. So do we have, you know, 20, 25 years, you know, from now when stigma is still here, you know, to report and uh, for these people who are flying, you know, this basically, even if they don't collide, you know, if people say like, why, you know, why should we be concerned about it? That there's no interaction, for example. Well, it's in their mind. It's playing and it's taking away their working memory. It's taking away their situational awareness. It's taking away out of flying safe. It's taking away from, um, you know, doing their job diligently. It's playing on their mind. Are they crazy? Are they not? And it's a big issue, you know, for a pilot to think, am I hallucinating? You know, am I safe? Am I, am I a good pilot? Am I still fit to work? These things still go through the mind. You know, why should we put people through that? Mm-hmm. You know, like, you saw it, okay, well, let's look at it. You know, what is it? You know, what did you see? Um, you know, describe, let's see, maybe there is a forum, you know, where other people experiencing the same thing. But uh, so I think this is the first lesson, you know, like, uh, so that even people are not talking about it, you know, how does it detract from their professional life and from their attention of being safe? in the cockpit, you know, carrying all these people, are they, uh, you know, have they experienced it and they got, you know, frightened even, for example, they just, they don't want, they don't want this because of their belief system, maybe even, Mm -hmm. you know, they just don't want to look at it. You know, it's just, it doesn't fit in into their, you know, world of view. And that's acceptable too, you know, because we're all different. You know, we all experience the world through a different lens. So why not, um, you know, why not, accept and see what we can do with this. It's, it's a real con- human concern. It's, it's care. It's professional care. Mm-hmm. And if I think there's uh, an actual effort to provide context around what these pilots uh, could be seeing, uh, it's going to minimize the distraction and enable them to hopefully in the future with process or procedure that could be implemented, uh, be able to you know ensure s- safe separation from that object and then be able to properly communicate that to uh, the appropriate authorities, whether that's ATC that would then handle that or not. Um, we've even, I've spoken with pilots who have been hesitant to even radio out to ATC air traffic yeah. control because they don't want their call sign associated with a sighting even. Yeah. And that they have then reached out after they've landed to other pilots they heard, uh, to then let them know that they've mm. shared the same thing. I think we're moving in the right direction. Uh, but it's still something that I, I hear from pilots that they are uncomfortable talking about mm-hmm. it publicly and, and, you know, essentially want to keep their heads down and out of it for the Mm. time being anyways. Yeah. And why, you know, like what's playing on their mind? Why do they not want to do it? It means they're concerned. They don't want to to be affected, you know, and that means it does take capacity. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is, it, it worries them to some extent. And I'm interested in that. To what degree does it affect their performance? So how do you propose on studying that? (laughs) Um, so I think first, a very good step to do is um, just to get um, to speak with the pilots who are experiencing to understand what do they, you know, what are they thinking 
what is their concern about it? Not even just what they're seeing, right? Because seeing is one thing, but then what happens with your cognition, you know, how loaded are you with this concern or thought or maybe not even a problem? Maybe they're curious, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Um, but the point is, is that to collect that reaction. So when the other person is confronted with it, they know or they have read, for example, that other people experience similar concerns or discomfort or excitement or fear or concern what other people would think about it. Should I talk to your traffic control? You know, what would my co-pilot think? And, mm -hmm. you know, all of these things, you know, do I talk about this to the family? You know, all of that thing, because it's, it's your professional time. You know, it, it takes on hold. It's kind of uh, slows you down. It's weight mm -hmm. that shouldn't be, uh, we, we shouldn't be burdening that person with that. You know, they should be able to do their job, what they expected to do. And given the parameters, if something is unexpected, well, there is a backup, right? Like emission control, <laughs> right? The, there is a, lots of uh, scientists, there are safety experts. There are, uh, you know, people who can take that load off and say, okay, what are you getting? You know, mm -hmm. let's have a look at this. Um, uh, how does this affect you? Um, so first, I think from, from my point of view, I would, um, people who experience this, you know, soon after the event to speak, you know, well, let's be let's be clear before we go into that okay. that you you have an you're proposing an actual study yeah right and so this would be something that you would oversee and you would be looking for volunteers to participate in yeah it would involve um, some type of reporting whether anonymous anonymous or not uh, so just to be clear this is something this is something that you are are looking to actually engage on as soon as practical um, so yeah I just wanted to put that out there <laughs> yeah. so you know we're not just talking about hypotheticals now. Yeah. So I thought on how could what I know or what I have done might be helpful in this situation. So by understanding that, uh, so first step would be to get people to talk about not that what they're seeing, but what they're experiencing. Because it's that the experience that allows us to open up or trust others. But if, if I tell you, you know, I've experienced this, you will tell me, oh, yeah, I did too. Mm -hmm. But you may not step up to it until until I told you. Uh, and that trust is important. So, and then that person feels accepted. They could literally exhale, and you see people kind of like, whew, you know, like weight is falling off of the shoulders because somebody got it. You know, mm -hmm. somebody understood, and and I'm not alone. And we can now, you know, uh, even if you don't look at it together next, but at least you know, like I, I'm not going mad, and it's uh, not an illusion, and it's really happening, and to other people similar to me. So by understanding what they're experiencing, um, by going into a situation, um, maybe even, um, you know, things that are happening before and how this enters their mind, how it's, how it's then impacts on what they're doing. Um, and, um, and by understanding what kind of thought processes go on, I'm sure there will be similarities across people. And there will be people... Um, then, you know, once we understand these categories of what person is thinking through, just by recollection of how did it affect me, um, then we are able to then look up um, also to understand in what scenario it happened. So capture under what circumstances it happened. So now we have these um, um, categories of what person experienced and, and what scenarios were around that. So we then can put this into a cockpit, you know, simulator, 
uh, and get pilots who have not experienced this to see, uh, obviously they would know, you know, so it wouldn't be complete surprise, mm -hmm. but they would know that they would be experiencing it, but they don't know when or how and how they would actually react. And the interesting thing, they would have thought through on how I would react, but what what fascinates me every time, we surprise ourselves mm. in in the situations of unexpected events. Um, and most often in a good way, you know, like we, we rise to the to the event and able to to deal with it. So so then at that point, I can use the methodology that I used with surgeons, with pilots, with astronauts, um, that was used with um, firefighters to actually depict the finite, you know, those microseconds that you're talking about, you know, of decision making and thought processing and, um, you know, how does this piece of information actually affects our cognition? Um, and then we are able to draw even further, um, you know, distinction on what is helpful, because we will see the reaction, what is not helpful, what, what corrective actions can be taken that are helpful. And we then can write procedures, we can design training. You know, from that on, we're able to take, um, uh, you know, some outcome that would be helpful. Because once, you know, why do you do simulated training? Uh, build the muscle memory. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it takes away capacity, mm -hmm. you know, as well. Yeah. So apart from, you know, uh, knowing what to do with the aircraft, but it's also uh, you don't need to process it as much. Mm -hmm. It goes into kind of a secondary buffer and you can take new information. So once, even if I read how other pilots react when I am in the aircraft, I would have already in my mind thought through those reactions and possibly even categorize myself where I would be. So when I encounter it, it wouldn't be as much of a surprise because I've already thought of it. And it would be even better if what the suggestions are, what how other pilots dealt with it after, mm. you know, what they do during and after. So now, once we have this process in our mind, we then don't need to um, occupy our you know, uh, loaded precious. memory, yeah, essentially, yeah. 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 So you have suddenly a capacity to deal with all the safety things that you need to do. Uh, and then we could do training, you know, there would be something we can do, like even computer training, you know, something, you know, online that's as easy. Uh, maybe for, you know, more serious type of operations, there could be a different type of training, and we could look into that, um, depending on, you know, how much of a safety concern it becomes because through understanding scenarios and reactions, we understand how serious the implication could be. Mm -hmm. And hence we can mitigate because it's all about prevention. Well, so, I, you know, I've been, a lot of pilots been reaching out to me both to support whether something I'm doing with America's for Safe Aerospace or perhaps yeah. come on merged. Um, I can, you know, help to continue to bring in pilots and identify them perhaps and would be happy to funnel them uh, to your study um, if, with their permission, of course, if that's uh, something mm -hmm. that gets off the ground. But uh, if there is anyone that potentially would be interested uh, in funding that type of work or is aware of any grants that might be appropriate for you, uh, we'll put your contact information uh, yes, at the bottom yes, in the description please, yeah. of this. I, I very much want to do this, you know, in a professional manner, you know, to, to actually give a dedicated time. So, and, you know, for that, it would be good to have not just me for one, but it's actually have a group of experts, you know, mm -hmm. that have want to work the problem and it could be funded to a degree that we can actually dedicate time and produce a result that is useful. 
And so there are like four phases to this study. So it would be good to, um, you know, not to do it as a hobby of often when I can mm -hmm. or often when other people that sort of I work with can because that delays by months and months mm -hmm. because something takes over or a family, you know, like we're all, uh, you know, leaving <laughs> on this earth kind of um, within you know, time frame. So mm. in order not to postpone it, to, t to do it, um, I would love to get it properly funded. Mm -hmm. So if, if people can come forward with funding or you know of somebody who is willing to provide, uh, you know, input financially and also experts, then, you know, that, I think that that's a good step, you mm -hmm. know, to provide some training or procedures or even awareness, you know, in the basic level. Um, and you know, it, it's, I, I feel it's easy. It's, it can be done. You know, we don't need much mm -hmm. to take it forward. Good. Even without going to a simulator, I mean, which would be like a more expensive component, right? Yeah. But even before that, to prepare for the sim to get this, the scenarios. But even that, I think it's not that challenging to do. I mean, people would come forward and we probably can find a simulator, you know. Like, so all of this organizational things that, you know, whoever is willing to contribute to what degree, that would be amazing. As part of, you know, this volunteering effort of looking into how the UAP events are reported currently, um, I, I looked at the multitude, actually, that there are many ways to, to report the UAP, which is great. You know, this is, this is a big breakthrough. But when I looked at it, it's, um, you know, sometimes several dozens of questions, if not hundreds, you know, because people are looking for data and they want to split it to analyze it. And pilots aren't going to fill out a hundred question answer no. form at the end of a exactly. flight. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've worked with pilots long enough, you know, to to say that it's just going to, um, you know, even if you've got a will for safety, you know, it will just get bitten out of you, mm -hmm. and you just would not complete. So uh, it's it's either have to be motivational, and they know. So it's sort of like you set setting up yourself for. Um, a task at hand and you figure out how much time it will take you. But if you don't see the end of it, you lose the will to do it. Mm -hmm. So it's about, um, you know, making an effort or maybe bringing people together to concerted effort to figure out how best to do it. It's more than just a checklist. Then, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, so and I think it's about getting some people who are already working the problem uh, together as a workshop setting and to make sure that we all contribute on how best to um, bring the data that is required uh, and also make it palatable for them for processing, you know, like those forums mm -hmm. that were just one-liners. It was difficult for the researcher, but I was mm -hmm. curious, you know. But uh, to make it now that, you know, we've got lessons learned and, and there are techniques on how you can encourage people to continue doing the questionnaire, uh, but also to make it so they could see where it, where it ends, mm -hmm. you know, and also see why are they doing it. So they can see and feel that they're not just feeling data that's not going to be used mm -hmm. or going to go into the ether. Um, I've yeah. seen I've seen pilots. Uh, I've seen some of the reports that they've done, at least in the Navy, uh, since um, 2018 or so. Some of them have been released via FOIA. Um, one, I will say, optimistic uh, point is that many of the pilots added their own text at the bottom, uh, the other box there. Uh, and a lot of them were asking for more feedback and were seemingly very interested in being further engaged in this topic. So uh, I think, you know, to your point, if we can, you know, properly um, engage pilots with this, I think we're going to see more data come out, which is only going to help this issue. Yeah, that's it.
Yeah, thanks. <laughs> that's amazing. That's, that's good, you know. Mm-hmm. That's, people are coming forward. I think it's time. Very good. I'm excited. I think it's time as well. Dr. Ia Whiteley, thank you for uh, making the trip here to New Hampshire, to the United States, uh, to have this conversation. It's a pleasure to meet you in person. I'm extremely excited about uh, the expertise that you're bringing to this field uh, and that the potential study uh, that you could engage with to help bring about better procedure and reporting and, and psychological safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, for military and commercial pilots. So thank you. Thank you, Ryan, for inviting me here, you know, and possibility of sharing of what I can contribute. And very much, I think it's a team effort. So, you know, you speaking for many years now about this topic and, you know, the opportunity to get other people on board to solve this would be amazing. So a pleasure. Thank you for making it happen. Thank you. <laughs>